Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. Yes, the last program for 2018. It's good to have your company. Um, this is a doozy, this one. We actually, uh, last week we had Max Wallace on. This week we've got, um, we've got several people from the United States in an interview recorded over there by the National Education Policy Centre, an interview between uh, Dr. Gregory Smith, who's Emeritus Professor of Education at the Lewis and Clark, uh, Emeritus Professor um, over there, and um, Professor Malawe Rooks, um, who is an expert and has just done some really interesting work on segregation of children and um, education in America. Uh, segregation of children is something that we're actively attempting to do here in Australia. We segregate them um, on terms of postcode. This has been proven over 2018. And um, this interview highlights the consequences of when you segregate children out, not just in terms of postcode and income, but in terms of race, which is what they've done over the years in America and are continuing to do at an accelerating rate in 2019. In fact, this program will be focusing on the United States and what's going on there under the, the rule, I don't think you can call it government, under the rule of their current president um, and what the Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is on about at the moment in the United States in terms of resegregating schools but also in terms of some other things which, um, which I'm going to tell you about later. It involves guns. It involves um, shooting people um, in schools on purpose uh, and Betsy DeVos's ideas about why that's a good thing. Um, we'll also be talking in broad strokes about what's going on between the Victorian state government, which is newly, exec- newly elected and empowered, and the federal government, just briefly, because they've had this little argy-bargy about money. And I think it's important that our listeners have an understanding about exactly where the money's going to when it comes to education in the schools of Victoria in 2019. But with all that coming up, and of course our great state school here in Melbourne, Keylor Downs Secondary College, congratulations to them, they're our great state school of the, of, of the week. Um, I'll be explaining why they're so great at the end of the program, because it's always nice to finish on a bit of good news. So hang around until then. Um, we'll be going on a little trip, an interview to the United States and talking about what's going on in there and coming back to Keylor Downs to finish off the program. All of that after this. Rap with Young Philly, Sing with Fia, Breathe with Avi Mistra, Yodel with Sue Hart and much, much more at the Watt Singers Festival, January 11 to 13 at the Abbotsford Convent. Go to boit.com.au for more info or ring 9417-1983. A 3CR supporter. 
Hi, it's Joe here from Music Matters. Just letting you know that as part of summer programming, I'll be doing a two-part special compilation of artists that have come into 3CR to perform live for Music Matters. Tune in from 12 noon to 2pm on Friday, December 21st and Friday, January 4th. Lest we forget. Join us to commemorate the 177th anniversary of the execution of the two Indigenous freedom fighters, Tanaminawe and Morbohina, at the Tanaminawe and Morbohina Monument at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne, at midday on Sunday, the 20th of January 2019. Walk with us after the ceremony to the Queen Victoria markets to their last resting place. Please bring flowers. The first hour of the ceremony will be broadcast live by Community Radio 3C. If you can't join us for the ceremony, listen in to 3CR midday to 1pm on Sunday the 20th of
Well, if you think you got lost, you haven't. That was um, oh, Mr. Mr. Richard Wagner and his Ride of the Valkyries, one of the most sort of socially, contextually laden pieces of music ever written, I think. Uh, yeah, Ride of the Valkyries. Um, if you love it or you hate it, I suppose we made you listen to it. So if you, if you don't like it, I apologise. If you do like it and you're dancing around the kitchen, oh, that's good too. Anyway... Um, I sort of played it because we're going to be talking about American things, and for some reason or other, that that particular piece of music's been um, been associated with American imperialism since the 1970s. But talking about American things, we'll be having an interview um, later on about racial segregation and its current its current status in the in the American education system. But before we do that, I promised you I'd talk about a woman called Betsy DeVos, who's the education secretary for Donald Trump. And she, like all good, all good conservatives, goes. And she's just come back from a listening tour. She's toured the United States and she's listened to people. And having listened to people, she's now decided what she's going to do. Now, whenever someone goes on a listening tour, the one thing you almost guarantee they won't be doing is listening. Um, now, she's heard many people who have said that the idea of giving teachers in classrooms firearms to protect themselves is a bad idea. Lots of people said, no, that's, that's, you know, you really shouldn't be having, like, teachers with guns in schools. Putting more guns into schools in the hands of teachers is not necessarily a good idea. But Miss, Miss, Miss Betsy DeVos, the Education Secretary of the United States of America, says, yeah, yeah, you can do that if you want. She's given a quiet nod to people who want to arm teachers in American schools. When I say arm, I mean give guns to teachers. Now, the Trump administration's new safety report, I'm reporting uh, now from um, an article which first came out on December the 20th, um, on December 20th, on the NBC news site. Um, the Trump administration's new safety report, which was released last week, encourages districts to consider arming school personnel. It praises state programs that arm teachers and suggests that schools could use federal funds to train staff in the use of, of, of the art of shooting people. But the report does so very quietly, after the idea of arming teachers faced fierce fierce opposition, including from the Federal Commission on School Safety's two-month listening tour, and some of the nation's most Republican states have said, oh no, this is a really bad idea. Now, the long-awaited report from the Commission, chaired by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, did not explicitly recommend that schools provide teachers with firearms, but praises, lords, various state programs that do have and will give teachers guns. And stress the need for specially trained school personnel to respond to acts of violence and the Commission commends divisive initiatives that allow teachers and other staff members to carry guns. Currently in the United States of America, if you are taught in South Dakota or you are taught in Texas or you are taught in Arkansas, your teacher at the front of the class will be packing heat or could be packing heat, um, once they've done effective training programs, inverted commas. Now, an education department official who asked not to be identified, you get that a lot these days in the United States. You get an official who did not want to be identified said... (laughs) Anyway, an education department official who had asked not to be identified said he was not authorised to speak to the press, but the report was a clear endorsement of giving teachers guns. When the department provides information on best practice, it does so for schools to conduct those practices, he says. They are very direct about the idea of arming teachers, and if you are going to arm teachers, here's the way you do it. 
So the solution being put forward, or one of the potential solutions to um, school shootings or violence in schools, is to give teachers guns. Now, I don't know how many people listening to this program in Australia, uh, or around the world, because we're a podcast, of course, are teachers. But we all have all worked with teachers that we know in classrooms that habitually, on a daily basis, lose their temper. They shouldn't be given <laughs> straps yeah, or canes, okay. let alone well, guns. Yeah, like, I suppose... I suppose in America what they're saying is they're going to ban corporal punishment in schools, but they're going to introduce the other capital. <laughs> oh, I'm being I'm being facetious here. That that's that's not what they're saying. But my goodness, it's a foreign country, isn't it? It really is. So, you know, sometimes people say the past is a foreign country, but what they're talking about giving guns to teachers in schools as a matter of policy. Training teachers to use guns to defend their students um, against incursions from from mad people who come into schools to shoot the children. I uh, anyway, um, I just thought I'd mention that because America is a very different place. But sometimes in Australia, when we talk about education or policy, we look to the future, and when we look to the future, we see what happens in America because it usually happens in Australia couple of years afterwards. So I hope that's not one of the madnesses that we will adopt. However, in Australia, in 2018, we have reported in this program that Australia's educational... Uh, no, not education. The children of Australia are becoming more and more segregated. And they're becoming more and more separated and segregated from each other. The government is separating and splitting our children into public school children and private school children and funding both equally. The private school students are put into schools where they can be segregated out from the rest of the population. Those schools are exempt from the anti-discrimination legislation of the country, as we discussed with Max Wallace last week. And the educational attainment of students in Australia is becoming more and more determined not by how well they do at school, but the postcode in which they live, or indeed the religion to which they hold. Certainly, as Australia, we are becoming a more and more segregated society educationally, and perhaps it can be argued we're just becoming more and more segregated than we used to be. But in America, in this interview that we'll be highlighting now on the DOG program, it's brought into stark contrast, because in America, they don't argue about whether we are or we aren't. They know they are, and this has to be addressed. And we'll be listening now to an interview, I think a very interesting interview, between um, Professor Gregory Smith and Professor Molawe Rooks, both of whom um, are interested in education, and Professor Malawi Rooks is particularly interested in segregated, edu- segregated education in the States of America. But no more for me, I think we'll hand it over to them. This is Greg Smith with the National Education Policy Center's Education Interview of the Month. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Naluwe Rooks, the chair of the American Studies Program at Cornell University and an associate professor in the Department of Africana Studies. In 2017, she published a book entitled Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education that raises serious questions about a range of educational reforms that have become prevalent over the past decade and their impact on our ability to create truly equitable schools. Welcome, Noliwe. Hi, thank you so much. To begin with, what led you to look more closely at the issue of school privatization 
charters and the involvement of well-to-do whites in the education of black and brown children? Well, I was, it actually, it's funny, a lot of times when you're doing research, um, you know, you can't really pinpoint the exact moment when an idea started to take shape. Um, but this one, I know exactly when it was. It was 2009. Um, I was at that time on the faculty at Princeton University. Uh, and a young woman came to visit me who was very interested in um, education. She, you know, she came and said that education is the civil rights movement of our time. And um, it was a terrible, terrible thing when a child's zip code in the United States dictated the kind of education that they had and um, a whole host of sentiments about the education of black, brown, and poor kids um, and what needed to be done to to fix it. Um, these were ideas that I knew were kind of swirling around the campus and the country. Um, new President Barack Obama talked about education in similar ways, using similar terms. Um, there were all manner of films and conversations and symposiums saying similar kinds of things. And so I knew that she was very interested in the, the so-called educational reform movement. But the thing that brought me up short and actually led to the book um, was the more that we talked, um, the more it became clear that she just did not believe that it was necessary to start to include uh, people who lived in those communities, the students, the grandparents, the social workers, um, who were actually educating and supporting children in excuse me, the kinds of school systems that she said she really wanted to dedicate her life to targeting. Um, more than that, uh, she really seemed to think, or she said, um, that it wasn't it wasn't really all that necessary to include those folks because, uh, you know, she and others who thought like her really did have a handle on some things that were working. Um, and if community people had a handle on things that were working, schools just wouldn't look like that. Um, and so my response to being taken aback by someone who admittedly um, had spent little to no time in communities like this, um, who admittedly had not attended any schools that were as underfunded um, as were the ones in the communities that she, she was interested in, that she was going directly against what I understood to be true about those communities, which is, you know, people, poor people, just because you are poor does not mean you don't care about the education of your kids. In fact, um, education in poor communities, in communities of color, is often seen as this sort of yellow brick road or talisman. It's this it's this uh, unicorn or ring, you know, whatever the uh, metaphor to use. It's the thing that can really help. Um, not just a child, but an entire community to pull themselves up out of out of an entire family to pull themselves up out of poverty. And so I, I, I had no experience as someone who did work in, grew up in, um, put together research projects with with the characterization of low income schools and education that that she had. And literally, the book got started um, with me trying to figure out where that came from, where that kind of disconnect, that difference between what people, uh, what so many, not every single person maybe, but so many people over the decades have said um, is this thirst for education and is this this relentless fight um, to bring 
quality education into those communities with people who are saying, well, we're here to help you, but we don't need to talk to you. And so literally that moment, that one conversation is what got the whole thing started. How did you go about studying uh, this this whole complex of, of issues? Well, honestly, so when I when I started, what I thought I would do, because, again, this is 2009, and um, these efforts that where you have a, a term that I would see bandied about by journalists was the Billionaire Boys Club, um, where you had a number of billionaires, overwhelmingly male, but not all of them, um, the Walton family, the Broad family, um, generational wealth, and multi-billionaires, some of the richest families in the country, um, had staked out their philanthropy, their philanthropy um, around these kinds of reforms um, that this young woman came to talk to me about, charter schools, vouchers. I mean, our own Betsy DeVos saying our own is Secretary of State, her family, had been long involved, billionaire family long involved in trying to bring um, some of these more privatized, corporate, um, less traditional public education, less forms of traditional public education um, to the fore. And I initially, you know, was trying to figure out um, when that started. When is it that you, because you, I wanted to get to back up enough um, to the moment before we had that kind of deep-pocketed money interest in communities, again, um, that, that for the most part, the, the people um, funding these efforts just didn't know anything about. Um, not saying they didn't know any black people. They did not know anything about those specific communities with any, uh, with any depth. So I kept backing up, backing up, backing up um, in terms of decades, like going through, through different periods. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'm sure it's the Reagan presidency that brought this all to the fore. So I'll just like sort of start, you know, maybe in the 70s and that won't be happening. And um, then, of course, I got there and I was like, yeah, no, this wasn't the beginning. <laughs> Reagan had a whole thing around privatization and um, and the like, but that was hardly the beginning um, of the story. So long story short, I ended up backing up all the way into Reconstruction. Um, and even there, even in the 19th century, in the decades immediately following the, the Civil War, um, you have this same kind of deep-pocketed interest in certain forms of education for groups of people who these um, who these philanthropists didn't know. So then it was people with, with last names um, – like Pillsbury or Dodge or Carnegie or Rockefeller. Um, at the time, you know, this term robber barons, but just the billion, the, the Bill Gateses and Zuckerbergs of the 19th century, for lack of a better uh, way of making the point, were as invested in uh, education for poor kids, for, for black kids, uh, uh, as they were today. And so the book ended up being like me grappling with, me thinking about, me trying to make sense of what it means that we've always had that and what what um, has all of that involvement, um, that access to government, access to unimaginable wealth in whatever period of time, um, an overarching interest in educating kids who don't look like their kids um, and with with forms of education that don't look like the forms that their kids get, like what what is that? Why is that? 
Um, and so, yeah, so then I started telling the story coming forward. So what is it about the education of other people's kids from the late 19th century through the present that seems so problematic for you? Yeah, you know, the thing, one of the things that I noticed um, uh, is the, the forms of education that are prescribed for kids um, who are not wealthy or not at the 19th century members of the planter class, who are not, um, you know, going to prep schools, who are not, you know, not, not getting what the elite have always considered um, as the kind of education for their kids. That kind of education is never on offer for poor children. So though you have very, very wealthy people um, at every period sort of saying we care, uh, often there's a business thing, right? We want them to get jobs. Um, we want them to be able to support themselves. Um, that's, that's underneath the forms of education, if it's vocational education, if it's cyber education in more contemporary times. Um, it's always this is in their best interest. But the thing that I'm, I'm consistently struck by is we try all kinds of things to address undereducation in the wealthy and government and these alliances and different kinds of experiments, um, except the exact same kinds of education that we provide for wealthy kids or that the wealthy provide for their kids. Um, it, there's always something that I call idiosyncratic. Um, always something that it's this is the education for you. Um, it's never just there's some sense of what quality education is, um, and we're going to ensure that everyone gets it. The nature of the quality um, is different. The so-called, I'm doing like air quotes for quality, <laughs> is different depending on on uh, whose child it is. And philanthropists, uh, and government folks and outsiders to those communities who come in, that is the thing that I found to be consistent, that um, it's, it's not how we educate our kids. It's what we want for you all. It seems really similar to the tension that Du Bois raised with regard to the education of black children in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and his criticism the Tuskegee Institute and the and the work of Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so but here's the thing: the the issue. So, the, so for those who who may not be as familiar, there was a, a rousing debate in the 19th century if if uh, newly free black people needed classical education or if they needed vocational education. Um, it was a stark, or it's presented as a stark either, or historians today would tell you that it, it was hardly as stark as we have, have made it be. But part of what Du Bois was arguing against was the movement for schools in the rural South following Reconstruction, um, following the removal, or in the post-Reconstruction period, following the removal of federal troops. Um, that had been protecting the lives and liberty and votes and educations of the newly freed slaves. And once those people left, the only form of education Southern governments would authorize for black people was vocational. Like, that's it. Um, if you were trying to offer a more classical education, if you were trying to, you know, say, hey, learn how to speak Greek, um, which was hardly running amok, 
uh, in the rural south. But if you wanted to, like there was hardly, you know, that, that this is what was proliferating. Um, but if you wanted to, you would open yourself up to all manner of terror and violence with schoolhouses being uh, burned, people run out of town, books and supplies destroyed. Um, the only form of education that, that more often than not would not subject you to that kind of um, abuse and violence was vocational. Um, and so it's it's that, that uh, n- not some kind of thing about, oh, you know, the only good education is this versus that, um, but asking a question about, but why is it that it's so important uh, for people who are funding education and, again, from outside of those communities to make sure that you cannot have the kind of education their kids have. No access to it for the most part. Um, and we will only fund a kind, a different kind of education for you. Again, nothing against vocational education. Um, right. It's just a question of, but, but why the animosity? toward one from people again who you didn't even give people a chance to choose right like it wasn't like oh here is some people could have this kind of education book learning education and then other people can you know learn how to be the nurse or make bricks or whatever there was no either or if you were going to be educated in the south following the civil war or following the the removal of the troops during reconstruction that was your only option. And so that's the that's the difference in the different quality that I think remains substantially similar up through today. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things that I that I explore. That's really helpful. You coined the term segronomics to describe the involvement of white philanthropists and entrepreneurs in the education of lower income students. What exactly do you mean by this, and why do you see it as such a threat to the viability of public education in the United States? Right. So, segronomics is literally a um, a, a collision, a mashup of segregation and economics. And so, in in starting to grapple with some of what I was seeing, um, as I again backed up trying to answer that one young woman's questions or com- or, or understand. The one young woman who came to talk to me, one of the things, so I saw this consistent undereducation, I saw a consistent interest in, on the part of philanthropists in education, and I saw uh, this idiosyncratic um, form of education. But I I started to wonder uh, if maybe one, like I I also saw people who were consistently figuring out how to profit from undereducation. So, from the earliest periods going forward, the ways that public education um, was set up in the South actually ended up benefiting white communities. Um, the tax dollars, so for, for those who don't know, be things like, uh, you know, southern states decided you couldn't have white and uh, uh, black tax dollars be mingled and that no white people's tax money should go into supporting the education of black children. So you had a double tax for black people who paid into a system um, in order to educate the white children in these various states and counties and municipalities, um, but then they had to pay another one to educate their own kids. Um, And only the money that came from often uh, in rural areas, you're talking sharecroppers, 
um, only the money that came from them or was paid on behalf on their behalf um, was used for this education. So the county and the education of white children that is benefiting, you know, from this kind of undereducation, from this segregation, from this separation. Um, those municipalities, those school systems, the, the literal counties um, are reaping a economic benefit from it. Up to and including some places who would say things like, um, you know, if you want to build a building to educate black children in the rural south, you first have to find some land and you have to deed that land to county officials um, in perpetuity before we'll even let you build a school. So the county ends up, you know, land rich um, as a result of having to, just so that black people can figure out how to get their kids uh, educated. And then going forward, uh, you, you notice things like um, what, what, uh, the federal government that moment in the 70s, um, post Brown v. Board and, uh, you know, before the 80s and when desegregation gets formed, the courts start to dismantle desegregation orders. You know, you, you have uh, things like the federal government, our own Joe Biden, um, sponsoring a federal bill saying, well, uh, if you're going to integrate using buses, you cannot use any federal dollars at all to put gas in the buses to get the buses to communities that uh, are predominantly white. So what what ends up happening there is uh, federal and state tax dollars end up being hoarded um, in white communities with no ways for poor and of color children to access those dollars. And with the government participating and saying, well, that's just because we're not going to pay to put gas in the cars. So that undereducation has a um, an inverse relationship to the amount of, uh, of money and access to opportunity um, and higher forms of education, more robust forms of education, um, simply because they're leaving out um, you know, kids who are poor and of color. And then in more uh, contemporary periods, you have something like companies like uh, charter schools or uh, Teach for America, you know, alternatively certified teaching course, you know, whose whole model, their whole business model um, is based on segregated, poorly educated children. So something like Teach for America is able to come into these racially and economically segregated districts if they're rural or urban, um, and then charge a finder's fee of $2,000 to $5,000 per child, um, um, per teacher, who they supply to the underperforming and often poor, scrapping, scraping, you know, by district on top of the the salaries that their teachers get. So that two to $5,000 per teacher is profit for them. Um, but that profit is only possible if you have a really underfunded and struggling racial or economic school district. I was uh, giving a talk recently at Northwestern, and I was saying, you know, just imagine how parents in the streets of Evanston would conduct themselves. Evanston is a very wealthy suburb of Chicago, really well-funded schools, high property taxes so that the schools are, are really well-funded. Th- these are not the communities that you would find a Teach for America teacher being in high regard. These are not the communities that would be shelling out two to $5,000 um, extra 
per teacher. It's poor communities that are asked to do that, and it's a, it's a profit. And last I looked, uh, Teach for America was worth about $400 million, last I looked. Um, so it's a profit. So between hoarding um, and prescribing other kinds of uh, under-education or idiosyncratic or experimental educational activities, um, all of this has become a huge business, huge. And so I'm saying that there's a profit to be made in segregation and asking the question, if possibly that's one of the reasons we have such a hard time ending segregation in America. So you devote a chapter to the rise of virtual schools. Mm. Uh, in what ways do you see these schools with their apparent focus on personalizing education and equalizing curriculum and instruction across different school districts, perpetuating the long tradition of apartheid education in the U.S.? But, you know, uh, there was just recently, uh, in the end of October, um, an article that I found fascinating in this regard, um, all about how parents in Silicon Valley, this is in the New York Times, not trying to big up them, it's just where it was, um, parents in Silicon Valley who work in the tech industry have, were saying that they just do not allow their kids to have any screen time whatsoever that, you know, they, they want their kids to develop with imaginations. But so wealthy parents have this whole thing um, increasingly about too much screen time um, for their kids as, as harmful to their development. I found that really interesting because um, there's, a, there's in, in rural areas, states are struggling with, with the cost of educating undereducated kids excuse me, special needs kids, kids who do not have uh, very strong basic skills. Um, and one of the things that's been proposed is why don't we let the computer do it? Why don't we, you know, use technology you know, as a way of filling in those gaps, letting kids work at their own pace. If kids are being homeschooled, this is great, or kids who are being bullied. or kids. So th this kind of virtual education um, works beautifully if you are a strong student, um, if you are gifted, if you have good basic skills, if you um, have intellectual curiosity, this works beautifully for you. However, if you are already intergenerationally undereducated, um, all of the research that we have, all of the data show that um, it doesn't work for you. You fall farther behind. Your skills, you acquire skills, um, it's more difficult. Uh, there's, there's so little good news in this sector that, again, you have to ask, well, why does it keep expanding? Like, why now it's been around long enough for us to begin to look and to see um, that it doesn't work as advertised intuitively? Yes, it may make sense. That, you know, you can have one teacher teach 3,500 people or something because of technology. Intuitively, that might make sense. But we now have enough uh, hard data to see that that, has, that is not the case for a variety of reasons, most of it being that the, um, the kids need more one-on-one -on -one attention. They need more and different kind of help um, as opposed to less. So, but the, but the, that sector, um, is a multi-billion-dollar-a-year sector um, that even more and more people are piling on. And so despite the fact that it's undereducating some kids, um, it's making some companies a lot of money. And, again, it is not a form of education 
you see in highly resourced uh, school districts. You do not see the highest resourced school districts say, let's just put our kid in with a computer and a virtual classroom. You argue that the, the proven solution to apartheid education in this country is fully integrated schools, something that journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones has persuasively written about as well. Yeah. What do you think will need to be done to accomplish this end? Well, I mean, okay, and let me be clear. I, that is the only thing we have ever seen that has worked at scale because I get a lot of pushback from parents, especially parents of color around this very topic, where they're kind of like, well, why do our kids have to be consistently traumatized um, or be, be sit places where they're not wanted? Um, and, and unfortunately, that's a different question. So I just want to bracket it with the thing that we know that has worked in the South from 64 to about 80, more or less, or really from about 70 to 80, um, was where you saw all of the ills that we wanted to, to address start to narrow, all of those gaps start to narrow, was uh, racial and economic integration. Um, I think, though, in this day and age, because so many of our districts are so racially uh, segregated and uh, because racial integration for a lot of people has become um, this knee-jerk, it's become a battlefield, even more of a battlefield. I think if we, if we at least change the, the terminology to talk more about economic integration, um, I don't think you fix everything that's broken, but we seem to be more uh, of a mind as a country, the big we, um, to be sort of more motivated to, to educate poor kids than we are if we start to talk about how education starts to um, can, can benefit racial folks. So I think, um, for one, I think we could talk much more about uh, economic integration uh, as colleges are doing. Colleges are big for this right now. But I think that also at the K-12 level we could do the same thing and maybe get some parents on board maybe get more communities, more schools, get more buy-in, so that it becomes a bottom-up effort and not one that's top-down. That's helpful. Uh, given the current Secretary of Education's support for vouchers, charters, and virtual schools, what kinds of things do you believe our listeners and policymakers could do to address the agenda that you're proposing and defend public schools from those who wish to privatize them? Yeah, I think that... Uh, this has been a long time coming. I mean, in my world, this has been coming since the 19th century, but certainly in the 21st century, um, at the level of electoral politics, there has been a concerted strategy that is local politics, built, you build from the local, from the most local out, um, to have people who support you in the, the ways that you think. And I think... To, to begin to push back on some of this, it's going to take that kind of long view. I don't think it's one, I don't think that one election uh, will do it. I don't think that one candidate is going to do it, do it for us. Um, I think that it's a much more broad form of organizing where we start at the most local levels looking at what schools need school by school um, and begin uh, conversations about how to get it for them. Are there any organizations that you're familiar with that have started doing this? Uh, 
Yeah, well, there's, um, and we're at 28 minutes, um, there's, there's uh, Integrated Schools, which is a community of white parents um, across the country using technology to really talk about how they and other white parents can educate themselves in the ways that they need to to, to be ambassadors for racial integration so that you're not, so that white parents who have historically been seen as a source of the problem um, consistently seen as blocking the schoolhouse door. What this organization is saying um, is let's start with them so that they can get with their neighbors to help to open up the schoolhouse door. Um, that's that kind of hyper-local because, again, they're all over the country and they're forming um, themselves into different kinds of conversational groups and uh, targeting different schools and making the choice to send their kids to under-resourced schools. Well, many thanks, Louie, for your work that will hopefully alert both the public and policymakers to the way in which many contemporary education reform strategies are actually diminishing the capacity of schools to overcome the social and economic divisions that have become so problematic in our country. This is Greg Smith for the National Education Policy Center. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 94198377. State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Welcome again to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. I thought I'd give our listeners a little bit of a heads up what's going on with the money and the stash between the federal and Victorian state governments. Now, the federal government basically backed down on its refusal to offer Victoria a short-term school funding deal at the end of 2019, diffusing a potentially destructive standoff as it attempts to clear the decks for the federal election. The Commonwealth and State Education officials spent the weekend hammering out a deal this last weekend that could break the current impasse and deliver independent schools $1.7 which is half of their 2019 funding. Now, the thing was, the problem was that all the independent schools and all the Catholic schools were jumping up and down because the Victorian state government said, we're not doing a deal until you fund the state schools. 
got to fund the state schools, got to cough up the money for that, or we're not doing a deal. And not doing a deal meant that none of the private schools got any of their money, and they were ropeable. This was because the federal government's got loads of money, but it can't give it to the private schools constitutionally unless it's done under Section 96 through the state government. The state government's become the conduit for the um, money. But if the state government says they won't be a conduit, the federal government and the private schools have got a problem. And they did. So um, basically, um, the federal government kicked it down the road. We'll be talking more about this in 2019 because it's going to keep coming up. Basically, the state government said, we got into government because we supported state schools, and we also, by the way, supported private schools, but we're not going to do the wrong thing by the state schools, and so therefore the federal government said, oh, we don't want to fight this fight because we want to get re-elected. So they kicked it down the can. So they gave them half their money, or basically six months' worth. It'll get revisited in a little while. But enough of that. We've been from America. We've been through all the interesting things that are going on. And I hope you did enjoy that interview. I thought that was really interesting myself. Um, but before we finish the course, I've got to tell you all about our great state school. Every week on the Dogs Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Now, of course, we're going to talk about that great state school, which is Keylaw Downs, Secondary College in Keylaw Downs, which is on the northwestern edge of Melbourne. Now, I'm going to talk about Keylaw Downs because Keylaw Downs has done something exceptional. Keylaw Downs has broken the padlock of the postcode Nazis. Keylaw Downs, in terms of their VCE results for 2018, have done something exceptional. They've broken through the 30 barrier. That is to say... The median score for all of their VCE students is above 30, which is a very, what's well, an excellent result. It's a single campus secondary school in the northwestern edge of suburban Melbourne. It has around about 125 teachers and around about, oh, how can I tell you? It's got the equivalent of about 1,400 kids. That's a big school. Big school. Big school. 61% of those come from background language backgrounds other than English. So this is on the edge. It's got a lot of students, got a lot of teachers, and they're doing a lot of amazingly good work. What about those kids? 35% of them come from the poorest kids in families in Australia, and 29% come from the quartile up from that. So basically, 70% of these kids come from, 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 from the poorest half of Australians, which is an extraordinary... Um, you know, their ICSIA value is well under 1,000, and they have done extraordinary results at VCE. Their NAPLAN results are absolutely fascinating as well. Their NAPLAN results, that is kids in year nine in the high school, everything's doing brilliantly. Like not just well, but brilliantly. All in compared to similar schools, but also compared to all Australian schools. Now when you say compared to all Australian schools, that's schools from richest postcodes as well. This school, Keller Downs, I want to do a little bit more digging into this, but we'll do that in the weeks to come. Keller Downs Secondary College are absolutely classically punching above their weight. And the, for me, the fascinating thing about this whole thing, which is why I'm going to dig into it a bit further, is how much is this costing the taxpayer? Per kid, with these results, which are top-notch results, you know, in the top 5% of the state, these kids are, are absolutely cutting it. 
They're doing it for 12000 bucks a kid a year. That's with an extraordinary... So um, people say that state schools aren't any good. Just go out to Keelow Down Secondary College and roll your kid there. You'll be getting... A sp- and do you know, like, you know, you know, fees and charges? Yeah, 200 bucks if you want to do some voluntary contributions. You can contribute to your education of your child for $200 a year. That's your fees and charges for Keelow Down Secondary College. Um, I can't say anything other than that. This school is absolutely top-notch, brilliant, and we does deserve more time to be spoken about. But at the Keelor Down Secondary College, not only do they educate, you know, the creme de la creme of Keelor Downs, they educate everyone at Keelor Downs because they've got VET programs, they've got VCAL programs, they've got they've got technical programs. The emphasis on the college is actually on supporting each student as an individual, and because in a in a school of almost 1,500 kids where every school, where, where you're focusing on every child being supported as an individual for 12,000 bucks a year, you, oh man, you know, every school should be like this as far as I'm concerned. What they're doing over there should be rolled out and we'll take the money away from those private schools and give it to people who run schools like this. Congratulations to Keelor Down Secondary College. You are our great state school for this week. Three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm the proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of the year. It's the end of the year on the dog's playing. It's the end of the year for everyone else. So a happy new year to everyone, and we'll see you again in 2019, of course, as we always do, because we still need to defend state schools into the future. If you're interested in what we've been talking about, you can get hold of us at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next time, and indeed next year, it's bye for now. Joe, I didn't die, says Joe.
smiling with his eyes, says Joe what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Rap with Young Philly, Sing with Fear, Breathe with Avi Misra, Yodel with Sue Hart, and much, much more at the Watt Singers Festival, January 11 to 13 at the Abbotsford Convent. Go to watt.com.au for more info or ring 9417 1983. A 3CR supporter. Yeah. 